Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Robert Baharian and this is Masters in Investing. They say life never stops teaching and we never stop learning. This show is a constant dialogue with investors about the economy, about markets, business and about investing to provide you with insight, learnings and a straight up point of view so that you can make better decisions with your money. Robert Baharian is the founder and CEO of Baharian Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Robert and the show's guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Baharian Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, its general in nature, and does not take into account your specific circumstances and should not be relied upon as a basis for financial advice or decisions. Clients of Baharian Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this show. Today I speak with Slava Platkov, Portfolio Manager and Vice President for the $800 billion fund manager that no one's ever heard of, Dimensional Fund Advisors, where he oversees and manages $8 billion of investor money. Slava holds a master's degree in applied finance from Macquarie University. He also has a Bachelor of Commerce from University of New South Wales majoring in finance and actuarial studies. He's currently lecturing Masters of Applied Finance at Macquarie University. In our conversation, we discussed systematic and comp-based investing, what to look at when valuing companies. We talk about brand value and the impact of intangibles on company balance sheets. We discuss the value of Mickey Mouse to Disney in the 1950s. And we talk about the fangs of the 50s and 60s and why what we're seeing today is actually nothing really new. We discuss home bias, and the emotional biases of investors. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Slava, welcome. Good morning. Thank Thanks you for Rob. joining me. No, thank you. Good to be here. Looking forward to this. Awesome. Me too. Now, dimensional fund advisors are a quantitative-based fund manager. Can you talk to us about what is quantitative-based investment management? And can you explain it in a way that my six-year-old will understand? Yeah, I can certainly try. And I think, I think there's a bit of a difference between like your typical quant and, and a systematic, which is sort of what olfactor investing stuff, which is sort of what dimensional do. And I think you want to throw traditional in there as well, traditional fundamental managers. And, and the reason you want to throw that in there is because all of these three approaches, uh, the common thing between them is that they're all trying to outperform. Right, so you can straight away kick the passive management out. You've got traditional, you've got systematic, and you've got quant. If you want to think about how to differentiate the two and to explain what they each do, the two questions that come to my mind are one is how do they actually go about trying to outperform? Like what do they believe in? And then the second one is around what do the actual portfolios look like at the end of the day? So traditional is the easiest one in that. And the fundamental traditional active managers, as you know, they do in-depth fundamental analysis of companies and the the premise there is they believe in mispricing. They they want to come to they want to look at cash flows, they want to look at prices and they want to say, all right, is my valuation different to what the market price is and should I buy or sell as a result of that? That's traditional. And their portfolios tend to be pretty concentrated. They're full of, if you like, best ideas or companies that they know very well. And also t- their turnover and fees tend to be pretty high as well. 
relatively speaking. Systematic is, or certainly the way we think about it, dimensional is fairly similar in terms of to the fundamental managers, if you like, from the perspective in that we also think about cash flows and prices. But where the difference is, is that rather than thinking about mispricing, we actually use market price. And instead, we ask a question, what kind of stocks, what type of securities using the current price, using the current balance sheets and income statements, tell us something about future return? So we kind of use market price. Are there any characteristics out there that have some predictive power about whether a particular stock or a particular group of stocks are going to outperform in the future? That's where the systematic bit bit comes in. So what we're after in, in the systematic land is we're after changes in characteristics. How does one particular security rank on, say, a price-to-book measure, price-based measure versus other groups of securities? And what does that tell me about future return. So we kind of turn it around and make it an empirical exercise. So we have some good expectations around what drives future returns. But obviously, if you pay less for something, that's gonna that's good for return. Or if you're going to generate more cash flow from something, that's good for return. So the expectations are there in terms of what should work. And then it gives us scope to go and do empirical work. Has has it actually worked? If I compare stocks on, for example, price to book and I form bait portfolios of cheap stocks and expensive stocks, is that going to tell me something about future returns? So then you make it an empirical exercise, which is what, which is kind of what we do. In terms of our portfolios, they tend to be plenty diversified, right? Because we are always working with groups of stocks. It's systematic. We're never after BHP. We're always after these stocks with a low price to book or these stocks with high profitability. The turnover of our portfolios tends to be pretty low as well because these characteristics that we're after, they they change very gradually. They're not changing very quickly. So we don't have to turn our portfolios over too quickly. And the fees are pretty low as well. Then you've got the quants, right? The quants, in terms of their portfolios, they're very similar to ours. They're also generally very diversified. The fees and the turnover, it really depends on the type of a quant process that they actually employ. That could It's across the entire spectrum. You can get the expensive, the high turnover, and you can get the other one. But in terms of where they're really different to us, the typical quants is they're really, it's much more scientific and much more rigid. What they're after is they're after kind of looking, in, looking at past trends or, or signals and, and deciding how repetitive they are and deciding what is the probability of those repeating themselves in the future and incorporating that into their portfolios. So they're not really after, you know, necessarily price or cash flows. They're not thinking about it from a fundamental standpoint. They're thinking about it, all right, I'm going to analyze a whole bunch of data from a statistical standpoint. I'm going to see if there's a trend, like momentum is a good example are they, of that. Are they playing the odds, Slava? Absolutely, yeah. And, and Are, are that, you not playing odds though? We're not playing the odds. Absolutely. We're not timing markets. There are, like I said, there are, we have some really good expectations around what should drive future returns and their fundamental expectations, you know, value, profitability, those things. And, and what we're doing is we're making sure that our portfolios are focused on those characteristics at, at all times, as opposed to quant, they would, for example, they might use similar metrics and they might use similar information, but they might say, all right, rather than just using price to book for value, we might use six different metrics and we might use it we might use this set of metrics in this country. We might use this set of metrics in this in, in this sector. We might use this this metric for maybe the last the January and February. Maybe we use another metric for for the other months. So they're very, it's very signal and kind of data trend based rather than sort of the way we approach investing. And when you when you look at stocks and you look at these metrics to compare other stocks to, so you said you're not looking for BHP you're looking for the stock that has these characteristics, right? 
when you compare the universe, do you look at BHP relative to the mining sector? Do you look at a technology yeah. stock relative to the IT sector? Or do you look at, or is it the entire universe? Can you just color that picture a little bit for, for us, please? Absolutely. And, and that's where the empirical work comes in. And that's, 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 I guess that's one of the reasons why people think of us as quants, because we have, this, we have to have an enormous amount of evidence, data kind of evidence behind what we do. And, and these type of exercises, what you've just asked me, is very much part of that. So generally speaking, we compare a stock versus its country peers. Right. When we build portfolios, be it, let's say an Australian portfolios, we look at BHP versus other companies listed in Australia, irrespective of sector. We've done that analysis. We can control for sectors. We can look at BHP versus other material stocks. The outcomes, the return outcomes you get are very similar. But when you're controlling for sectors, you end up bringing a lot more turnover into your portfolio because obviously you need to be sector neutral. So you, so the evidence tells us that you don't really need to do that to achieve the same outcome. So we look at BHP versus other Australian companies. And if it's a global portfolio, we look at you know Apple versus other US companies. And then we put countries together. The reason we do that at country level is because there are different accounting standards between countries. So looking a price to book for a Japanese stocks, you may not be able to, it's not an apples to apples comparison using a price book of a Japanese stock to, for example, an American stock. So you want to do them within each country and then you want to put those countries together. I want to talk about accounting standards later on, Slava. Sure. Um, but there's a few other things that I had on my list of things I was really curious about. You've talked a bit about how your process works. How do you look at a company and where do you actually begin? And how do you start the process of, deciding what it is that you actually want to purchase yeah and then what do you look at and how do you decide what you then have to sell oh absolutely absolutely so the process that we carry out is a daily process right and the reason we we we, we carry out a daily process because we want our portfolios to always incorporate the most recent information Right. So compare that to an index approach whereby they rebalance once every six months, once every 12 months, where, you know, there's this an enormous amount of staleness in what, what those portfolios hold. Our process looks at, I come into work and I think about, okay, what happened to prices yesterday in, in the, for the securities in my portfolio? What happened to ha, fundamental information of those securities yesterday? Have any of them come out with new earnings, for example? Any corporate actions? Did anyone take someone over? That's just, I'm taking into, I'm reacting to yesterday's information and based on the most recent prices, based on what happened yesterday, what is my ideal state portfolio, right? What is, the port what is the portfolio that will give me the maximum expected return, given obviously the constraints that I've got? And then I have a look, so I've got that, and then I have a look at what does my portfolio look like? And the difference between those two gives me impetus to generate buy or sell orders, right? So every day I'm trying to move closer towards that ideal state, based on the most recent information. So if, for example, a stock's gone up in price, it's all of a sudden less attractive to me, I should consider selling it and reinvesting into something that's more attractive to me, that's cheaper. If a stock's announced new earnings and it's more profitable, I should, find, I should try to find the money to buy that security. That means I have to go and sell something that's less profitable. So that process takes every single day. And despite... And, and, and I know what you're probably thinking, Rob, you're probably thinking, oh, that's a lot of turnover. It's every single day. The, the reality is it's not. There is not a lot at the, in the scheme of things 
one day does not make a huge amount of difference to how your portfolio is positioned. There's only so many things that could happen. So I only have to incur very little turnover every day to make sure that my portfolio consistently stays focused on its objective, which is, you know, if you want to overweight value stocks constantly, or if you want to overweight profitable stocks constantly. So it's a small amount of turnover. And all I'm doing is I'm just generating buy and sell orders to nudge my portfolio a little bit towards that higher expected return state. That's sort of how it works. You mentioned the word information and you mentioned the word prices a number of times. I want to, I want to dig into that a little bit deeper. Yeah. But before I do, you also talked about selling stocks that are going up, buying stocks that are going down. That's counterintuitive to the everyday investor who wants to buy the stuff that's going up and wants to sell the stuff that's going down. But I, I take it that your parameters try and remove as much of your emotion as possible because whether you believe something or not, you're governed by the methodology and the process that your portfolio construction must, must follow. Am I right in saying that? Absolutely, absolutely. So, so one of the um, so the process is ninety nine percent objective. It's systematic. There is a small element where I could come in as a portfolio manager and make a discretionary call. That's that's better for my portfolio. But even that's within a specific framework. When was the last time that happened, Slava? And was it a good or bad move? Jeez, <laughs> oh, you're putting me on the spot here. Um, let let me actually. I'll answer that question as I'm telling you, as I'm answering the first question as well. So. Obviously, one one of the main premiums that we believe in is the value premium, which is which is essentially buying cheap securities at the expense of expensive securities, and that's where I was coming from when I was telling you that if a stop goes up, it's from a value premium perspective, it's becoming less attractive. So we want to think about selling it and buying something that's cheaper. But that's not all we're doing. Another premium that, and I'll answer that question now. Another premium that's really important to us is momentum. We implement it very differently to value. In the, and there's some good reasons for that, but but one of the one of the recent can you scenario, just explain Slava momentum for the benefit of listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So momentum is where stocks that have gone up will continue to go up, stocks that have gone down will continue to go down. It is very prevalent in the data. From an economic standpoint, it is a premium that not many people understand. It's poorly understood, and it's a very short-term premium. Whereas a value premium, a value stock outperforms over a four, five, 10 year period, momentum momentum uh, lasts about six to 12 months. So if you overweight your portfolio to say high momentum stocks, because you think they're going to continue to go up, you're going to have to change that portfolio every six months, which is an enormous amount of turnover and an enormous amount of trading costs. The way we therefore implement momentum is we essentially treat it as a, a friction in the market. And, and this is where that example comes in. If I have a value security, for example, if I have a security that I own and it goes up in price and I want to sell it because it's less attractive to me from a valuation standpoint, I know that because it's gone up in price, from what I know about momentum, it's likely to continue to go up in price, right? So I want to, I want to make that decision and that's also a systematic decision, but I want to make that decision. I want to make a trade-off. I want to, I want to ask myself, what is the right thing for my portfolio right now? And the way we, we look at it is because we're always working with groups of securities and there's always a group of security that's gone up in price that I want to probably sell out of. And there's always another security that I could sell out of. I will not sell that security that's got a high momentum associated with it as well. I will delay that decision. I will let that security run 
earn that final little bit of return and then reassess tomorrow or reassess next month because I've always got other securities that I could sell. And one, one stock that comes into that place in our portfolio in a big way in our Australian portfolio is Fortescue Metals. That security um, has been on, on, a, on an amazing run and we've been overweight that security because it's, it's, it was fairly cheap when we bought it, obviously, and, it, and it's very profitable as well. So it ticks a lot of our boxes. It's gone up on an amazing run and it's now a really significant overweight. And while we want to be selling out of it, we're, there's that momentum bit that comes into it because it's still, it's still going up. But because it's such a large overweight and because it's such a large part of our portfolio, there's actually conversations that are ongoing within the team thinking about, all right, despite the the really strong momentum characteristics, maybe we should trim a little bit because it's now becoming a bit of a significant position in our portfolio. So that's, that's a scenario where... You know, the process is 99% systematic, but there's scope for portfolio management team to get together, have a conversation, think about what's the best for the portfolio and, and intervene if need be. And that's, that's another, actually, that's another really important feature of, I guess, systematic investing the way we do it at Dimensional is that it's not an automated process. There is a driver at the wheel making sure that every step of the process is carried out properly. And, and if need be, and there are many scenarios where we needed to intervene, like, you know, coronavirus month of March was one, one example of that. There is a very experienced team that can come in and make the right decision. So that's, that's really important as well. With the enhancements and advancement of technology, do, do you feel as though information is being reflected in prices the fastest it has ever been in decades gone? Yeah, um, we get asked that a lot. Obviously, like I said at the very start, one of the main pillars of how we approach markets and how we invest is our rely reliance on price on market price and so we have to have an enormous amount of confidence that the markets do a good job incorporating information into the price very very quickly and there's a, there's numerous tests that we've done to test that you know one one simple one is just and we've and there are quantitative tests to do this but one simple one for for the listeners is like just think about the month of march how violent the markets were how they've fallen sort of 35, 40% over a three-month period of time. An enormous amount of new information that investors just has, have never experienced was coming into the markets every single day. And what was happening was markets were going up 10%, falling 15 going up 7 falling 4 You know, that's a sign that informa- new information is coming in and markets are reacting instantaneously. One other more of a, uh, I guess, an extensive test of that is, is active manager performance study because if you pose a question where markets are not efficient or markets don't do a good job in corporate information and there are opportunities to profit from that then who should be the group of people profiting from that it should be these active managers because they tend to be they're very smart they're very educated they have very experienced and and they're very motivated to profit that's that's the business right and what you see is that you see over a long period of time, you see the vast majority of these managers underperform, like something like 70% of these managers underperform their respective benchmarks. And we've got some really comprehensive studies that show us that. So that, that's another, I guess, sign for us that markets uh, do a very good job incorporating information to prices instantaneously. Very difficult to refine these pricings consistently. Over the years, there's, especially the last few, there, we've seen investors move significant amounts of money from the active, yeah. typical active fund management to 
indexing, factor-based, smart yeah. beta, uh, et cetera. And especially a lot of younger investors that, that we speak with, no one's talking about active fund management. No one. Yeah. Everyone's talking about, should I go and buy that Vanguard ETF and just yeah. put it in the bottom mm-hmm. drawer? Why do you think that's the case? And do you also think that with the sheer number of now products that are hitting the market, is that beneficial to investors or is that just you know, confusing investors as to where, where to allocate the money? So two questions there. There's the, is it good for investors, but at the same time, can it be confusing? Yeah, I think it's good for investors. I think I think there's more and more advice out there. Obviously, um, you you have a lot more access to just good information about what investing is all about. You can do. You don't have to be a finance finance educated to look at some returns. And and the fact of the matter is, like a market portfolio deserves a lot of respect. It's giving you. US is the longest kind of the longest set of data we've got going back sort of ninety years. It's giving you ten percent per annum. Obviously, it comes with volatility, but it's giving you 10% per annum on average. And it's been, it's diversified, it's transparent, you know, exactly how it's constructed. You can generally access it at a very low fee. It's got low turnover. So there's a lot of very good things about a market portfolio. It deserves respect. You need to have a very good reason to deviate from it. That's definitely part of the reason why there's been so much money going into passive. And also the underperformance of Active Manager as a cohort as well has been, is another reason. But there's still... I think I think I was I think fifty or sixty percent of the overall invested capital is still with active managers, so it's still a very dominant part of the market, despite the trend very much being towards that passive state. Is that because of big superannuation funds, big institutional money that is skewing it that way? I think superannuation funds. We certainly got a lot of clients, institutional clients. They're still most of them are still very active minded, but they are becoming a lot smarter in terms of how much money and how much of their overall portfolios they want to allocate to active. Because like I said, at the start, it does come with a cost. It does, you know, it's so, so they do uh, a general, generally what an institutional client would do now. And they're very sophisticated investors. They would have a core of their portfolio with an index or an index like approach and then around that they will spend their kind of tracking error and fee budget on some of these higher octane managers active managers is still very much alive and people still believe in that in that whole proposition i think but i think just because of some of the underperformance over the last 20 years as a group and obviously the technology you you mentioned etfs and just an easy access to some of these products have really led to you know this trend of of investing in in this in this kind of in this product so do you think by taking that point of view and that stance you've got a lot of investment consultants and asset allocators justifying their role by allocating money to active management and you've got a you've got a a job of trying to not only pick the asset class but then pick the manager that's going to outperform mm. and do you think that if if people don't do that anymore, then there's some aspect or an element of what am I actually doing here? What is my role? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think there is definitely, there's definitely an element of performance chasing in the market. Um, I don't think consultants are necessarily the guilty party though. Um, They definitely the natural, the natural kind of view for them is to have a manager that's active and they're changing their portfolio a lot, which gives them obviously an opportunity to analyze it and then to relay that analysis to their clients. It's kind of a natural playground for them. But but they're also, I mean, they've got fiduciary responsibilities. A lot of these people have been around a long time. 
they understand the whole, all the trade-offs around, you know, tracking our own fees. And, and, and ultimately, I think, ultimately, I think they want what's best for those portfolios, for the clients that they advise to, consult to. And I think a lot of them, you know, a lot of them rate our funds, for example, very highly. And, and a lot of them rate Vanguard funds, for example, very highly, even though they're just passive solutions. So I think uh, they, they, they're smart and they're sophisticated enough to make the right decisions for their clients. So it's not necessarily like, oh, I only want to rate active managers because they are changing things all the time and it's a really cool conversations and I could sell that to, to the client. I think, I think they're better than that. I always find very amusing ratings and research that rate passive index funds as just recommended like yeah. it just it, it actually just baffles me how, how that came but anyway yeah. I, i'm obviously not a i used to do i used to do some of these ratings when i was at russell not not index funds but just generally and we we there was definitely a, um yeah look you need a, you need a criteria and that criteria performance has to be just one part of that overall criteria in terms of how you rate a manager a lot of the other things come into play there as well and that hopefully prevents you from chasing that performance and and as a result making making the wrong decisions before I change gears, is there, has there been a stock or can you just tell us some, an, a time when you've just got so excited about something, you want to include it in that 1% part of the, the process, <laughs> but you just can't, but there's something that's just gone. You're like, I, I want to get that in the portfolio, but you haven't been able to because it doesn't tick a whole bunch of other boxes. Can you give us an example of, of that? No, no, it's, it's never that way. It's never that way. Like we, we, you know, we, we have no emotion essentially when we when we're managing portfolios. You're, you're a all, human being, Slava. You have emotions. Well, it's you it's all biases. rules. It's all rules based. If 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 anything, Rob, it's the other way around. It's more like, oh, for example, a good example is some of the airline companies at the moment. So, you know, we we use profitability in our portfolio, so we tend to overweight high profitable stocks at the expense of low profitable stocks. The metric we use is operating profits on book. And what, so we compare companies on that metric, which gives us information about, you know, the return in the future. So a company that ranks well is likely to outperform in the future, right? So we rely on that metric to have that forward-looking information aspect with it, right? And we've done that analysis and it generally does on average. So that's, 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 that's great. But sometimes you get, you're in a scenario where clearly that metric operating profits on book is not reflective of future profitability. Where that company sits in the rankings is not is not reflective of the future. And and that, that there's a couple of reasons behind. It, it's it's just simply an accounting. It's a, it's a fundamental issue. And and some of the airlines came into play since this coronavirus because on some of those metrics, on some of those profitability metrics, they're still ranking quite attractively. But clearly, their businesses are are not doing too well. And they're probably not going to be doing too well in the next two to three years. So this is an opportunity where, as portfolio managers, again, using that experience, we have to come in and say, all right, Qantas is sitting here on that ranking, which which means it should be that footprint of our portfolio. But that's clearly not right because because we don't think, you know, we, we think it's going to change very quickly in terms of that profitability number for Qantas. So this is an opportunity for us to, you know, review that and adjust it if need be and make sure we, again, make the right decision for the portfolio. I want to get into that shortly. Uh, but yeah. before we do, the Australian stock market has 2,181 stocks with a market yeah. capitalization of around $2 trillion. Yeah. And this is, um, in, this is data from a, a couple of nights ago when I was looking it up. The all ordinaries, which roughly many of the Australian all ordinaries, 
which basically captures the top 500 stocks in Australia, yeah. makes up 1.93 trillion of the 2 trillion. So the top yeah. 500 stocks basically yeah. make up 98% of the 2,181 stocks. Yeah. And can you talk to us about the concentration of the Australian market? Can you talk yeah. to us about how top heavy we are, how much of that is top 10 compared to the top 500? And is this actually just an Australian thing? Because everybody talks about the Australian market is small. It has no breadth. It has no depth. But is that only an Australian phenomenon or is it actually something that's consistent globally? Can you give us some insight into that, Slava? Absolutely. Absolutely. So as you said, 2000 stocks, investable universe in Australia is around 450 stocks. And when we're saying investable, we mean uh, stocks that we can, you know, invest in in a liquid way, right? So there is a huge tail of companies that are just listed, but but there's just there's just not a lot that you could do with them. It is a top heavy market, so the top five names comprise nearly twenty eight percent of the market in Australia, and top ten names forty percent, top fifty names seventy five percent. So it is a top heavy market, but it's not. It's no different to many other markets around the world. That that concentration, that that concentration within the top few names, that's been around for decades in many different countries. The US being one example, at the moment, the top five names in the US are 22% of the market as well, right? And historically, that's been the case. Uh, so it's not, it is top heavy. There are some very specific nuances to the Australian market in, you know, we've got this huge allocation. We've got these four banks that are very similar as businesses and we've got this, so the financial sector is really large. We've got this materials, we've got BHP and Rio, which are very large as well. And we've got this REIT market as well, which is, which is a lot larger than the rest of the world, significantly larger than the rest of the world as a proportion, but it's no different to many other markets in terms of its concentration. And what, what that, what that conversation leads to is thinking about when you're constructing portfolios, how much of your home bias should you have and how much, how much should you allocate outside of Australia? Home bias, you mentioned, I read a, a Vanguard research paper recently that talked specifically about this topic. And I think based on Vanguard's numbers, and we see this as well when we, when we, we meet with prospective clients and you know, they say, here's the portfolio, here's our super fund, here's our trust we find that it's a mishmash of Australian stocks and, and they claim to be diversified because they're, yeah. they're holding three of the four banks. They've got four different mining companies. They've, you know, it's the classics, right? It's, top, it's yeah. basically a, a fragmented index that they've, they've created and it's a large portion of their stock allocation. Yeah. Vanguard's mm-hmm. research showed us that 65%, I believe, of an, in Australia of an investor's stock allocation is invested domestically. Yeah. Is is this home bias concept, again, is this a global phenomenon or is it just an Aussie thing that Aussies love investing in Aussie stocks? It's it's definitely a global phenomenon, but, but you've got to take into account the fact that Australia is 2% of the world. So there, there's even home bias in America, despite the fact that US equities is 65% of the global market. And you still have US investors having 70 or 80% in their portfolio in US stocks. 
So there is that home bias is prevalent across the world. The the issue is with Australia is that Australia is a very small part of the world, so it's much more pronounced. So yeah, we we've also done this type of surveys with our investors, and what we find is that sixty percent, on average, sixty percent of an investor's uh, equity portfolio is invested in Australian stocks, which is you know, which is 30, 30 times home bias, if you like. And we think we think at at, at that level, it's um, it presents a lot of concentration risk to the portfolio. There are some good reasons to have home bias. That's why it's so prevalent all around the world. In Australia, in particular, with franking credits, there's some good reasons. That those reasons are difficult to quantify because a lot of them are behavioural. Like like you know, in Australia, you know, for example, one reason is um, the fact that you're earning money in Australia, so you're linked to the Australian economy. So the Australian market is very much a good reflection of that. So that familiarity interaction, if you like, that's, that's, that's a good reason. But how do you quantify that? How do you come up to a number that tells you, all right, you should have 10% home buy. So 50, very difficult to do. There's a lot of research on this area as well. The way we approach it at Dimensional, because we manage some balance funds and the home bias that we have is 36%. The way we manage it is we kind of say, all right, what is the most diversified position that you can get to? And that's really just that market cap weighted global index. If you look at all country weighted index, IMI, so emerging markets, developed markets, large caps, small caps, the entire universe of stocks out there, that's the ideal state, if you like, from a diversification standpoint, right? That's what you want to lead to because that's the best portfolio you can have. Then, all right, and then we say, okay, if you've got 60% home buys, how far away are you from that, from, that, from that state? And the answer to that is very, very, very far away because if you've got a 60% home buys, for example, you're looking at a portfolio that has... 27% in the top 10 stocks and all those 10 stocks are Australian stocks. And you've got more, more of your portfolio in the top 10 stocks than you've got in the whole of the US, right? Are you that, saying that the ideal is 36% in your, so in your world allocate, what, what was a 36%? 36% is, is what we use as a number in our allocate, allocate. That's our Australian. home buys, yeah. So if you look at our World Equity Trust, for example, 100% equity portfolio, 36% is going to the Australian portfolio. And that's, and the, so that's a number that's much lower than your average investor, but that's a number that we're comfortable with in that you're getting, you're getting some home bias because there's, like I said, there's some good reasons for that, but you're also, you're also end up at a portfolio, particularly if you're using dimensional portfolios, which tend to be um, underweight, large caps, overweight value, you, they, and they tend to be a lot more diversified than indices. Then you get to a portfolio that's got, you know, that's got, 20% in, in the top 10 names, uh, 40% in the US, you get a portfolio that is very, very well diversified across different industries. So you get away from that financials and materials, you know, you get a whole bunch of healthcare, you get a whole bunch of IT in your portfolio all of a sudden. So it becomes, again, it's not a scientific exercise. It doesn't have to be. It's just a, it's just, it's just a matter of looking at your portfolio and thinking, all right, how diversified is it? How well represented is it across stocks, across countries, across sectors? And we think at that 36% home bias, it's a much better outcome than, than the 60% that, that the average investor has. I think a lot, a lot of it has to do with familiarity and investors' appetite to invest in something they're unfamiliar with. So the first decision they've made is I'm going to invest in stocks. How yeah. can I uh, mitigate or minimize this risk? I'll invest yeah. in things that I know. Yeah. Maybe not knowing that actually what you're doing is you're taking a much higher level of risk yeah. by concentrating your portfolio. So I think a lot of it has to do with 
that what what people are feeling comfortable to do that behavioral aspect yeah yeah but then again like why wouldn't you and this is where the advisor the advice is really important right because you know it guys like yourself rob you can it's a it's a simple conversation like why wouldn't you want to have exposure to amazon why wouldn't you want to have exposure to microsoft like and i think the last 10 years have and and i think that it'd be remiss of me to ignore the technology stocks that i want to touch on for a couple of minutes yeah. And this is not a COVID phenomenon. These, these stocks have been on a tear yeah. for a number of years now, although probably more pronounced now than, than they previously were. And yeah. in fact, if you hadn't invested in top in, in US growth orientated stocks for the last 10 years, it actually doesn't matter where you invested your money. You're behind the eight ball every yeah. single time. What, yeah, what do you think, what lesson do you think investors should take from that? I feel like we've answered that partly with, with global mm-hmm. allocation, but what are some of the other lessons do you think investors should take from, from these learnings over the course of the last 10 years? In fact, it's since the GFC. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They've gone on an amazing run. I was reading something just this morning that said FANGs have accumulated a return of 35% per annum over the last 10 years, which as a group, which is quite incredible. If you were standing 10 years ago, though, and you, you were asked, are these high expected return securities? Is your expectation that they're going to earn 35% per annum in the next 10 years? The answer would have most likely have been no way but and that's and that's that's markets for you like this the the realized returns of, are unpredictable you, it's very difficult to um, to to predict market returns and and these themes these long cycles of similarish companies becoming innovative and you know the products that they're the products that they're putting out in the market are really popular and they're just becoming more profitable that's been around for decades right and you know we, we have to go back to things like um, you know IBM in the 50s or or AT&T you know but but in the in the first part of the last century right or general motors right like think about the airbag and the and the automatic transmission right these were the fangs of those those decades right and they were huge companies and their prices were very very high they were very expensive on any valuation and then and then but then cycle this cycles finish and now now it's this now it's the apples of the world and that's going to finish as well at some point there's going to be new things out there so it's it's not uncommon that these cycles take place in markets this small group of companies perform really strongly that is quintessential growth investing following this country and then but what we know is that over the over the long term you know value companies outperform we what we don't know is when that happens when that bubble bursts if you like we don't know very difficult to time these markets but what's happening right now is in terms of just a broader theme is no different to many other times uh we've seen previously i saw some research that looked specifically at this and i I, it may have been dimensionals research that looked at top companies that make up top 10 over, since, I think, you know, 1930, 1940. And yeah. you see, you know, you see Avon, you see uh, yeah. AT&T, General yeah. Motors, General Electric, ExxonMobil, who just got kicked out of the top 10. But a lot of these companies, once they make the top 10, they hang around for a long time. So it's not as if they make the top 10 and then they all of a sudden fall away. But what I wanted to talk about was, once they make the top 10, sure, they might hang around from market capitalization perspective. Yeah. But the future returns are not actually that good. Yeah. They're, quite, they're quite lousy. Do you know what some of those numbers are? Yeah, absolutely. I do. I do. Um, so 
if you draw a line at the point of a company entering the top 10, right? If you draw that line and then you, you look back, how did, how did this company perform to get into the top 10? Obviously, that performance is going to be amazing, right? It, the company would have outperformed the market. I think over a 10-year period, I've got these numbers here, the company outperformed the market by 10% per annum over a 10-year period before it got to the top 10, to get into the top 10. From there onwards, the subsequent return, which is really what investors are primarily concerned with, right? No one cares about the past. We want to know what's going to drive returns in the future. The company in the top 10 has underperformed the market by 1.5% per annum over the, the subsequent 10 years, right? So that's that's something that we've seen, that, that's the analysis that we've done. So, and our portfolios, our portfolios, our typical core portfolios that tend to overweight small cap value and profitable securities, we try to actually try to maximize return across that entire cycle. So as the portfolio is entering the top 10, as it's going up, we've got things like profitability and momentum working for us. Once it's in there and it's starting to come out, we start to increase our position whereas it's starting to underperform and it's becoming more attractive from a valuation standpoint. So there's there's different characteristics that are in play there and our portfolios tend to adjust to make sure that we are well positioned to capture all those changes in characteristics. So I guess it goes back to the price you pay for, for a business or for investment. The more you pay, the less your future expected return, the less you pay, the greater your, your future Correct. expected return. Yeah. But yeah. I, I think investors have this, I mean, we all have this recency bias that, that we look at what's happened most recently, we project that out into the future and then our expectations are anchored to what had happened. Yeah. And if the future deviates from that, we're disappointed. Yeah, On the downside, right. if, it, if it's beyond that, we're obviously uh, not disappointed and, and we're quite pleased with the result. That's right. You, you've been talking quite a bit about value. Let's talk mm. about that. Uh, let's yep. talk about the rise of intangible assets on yeah. companies, well, I'll say balance sheets, but if you asked an investor 20, 30 years ago, what was the most important thing about looking at a company's metrics or valuation, th- they would have said earnings. What is the company's earnings? Because yeah. that's what you're paying for, right? Yep. But what we've been seeing yep. over the course of the last 10 maybe 50, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say quite say 15 years, maybe the last 10 years, we're seeing this rise of some intangible value that is incorporated in companies. And what used to be a line item on the profit and loss probably shouldn't be sitting on the profit and loss. What should be sitting on the balance sheet probably shouldn't be sitting on the balance sheet anymore. And then your bottom line is this mix of cash flow and, bal- and, and balance sheet items that is really, I feel, making it difficult for people to place values on these things. So, yeah. you know, we use brand name as an example. We use uh, yeah. companies' distribution list, for example, R&D, a whole variety of things. And we can, we can probably go on forever and talk about intangible yeah. value. How are you looking at intangible value yeah. and using that number to put into your formulas to, for it to spit out something for you to then say, this company looks attractive or this company does not look attractive? Yeah, absolutely. And it's been prevalent. This whole conversation has really been around the last five years where the value premium 
has been particularly challenged because the where it comes from is is the premise there is that if you're using something like a price to book, which is probably the most commonly used value metric to compare companies on, that reported book value doesn't include those internally developed intangibles that you're talking about, things like trademarks, copyrights, patents, franchises, computer software, things like that. If you were to include those things into the book value, then price to book number would be lower. So those companies, they appear growth expensive, but if you include those intangibles, that ratio goes down. So they become much more attractive from a stamp from a valuation standpoint. So that's the argument. That's the argument saying, all right, this is actually not a growth company, it's a cheap company because it's got this huge off balance sheet balance of internally developed intangibles. And we've done an enormous amount of work on that. And first of all, first of all, um, it pays to understand exactly what intangibles are. We just spoke about that. But then there's also externally developed external intangibles too, which is which is goodwill, which is which has a market price to it. And that market price gets assigned to it through acquisitions. Right? When you buy a company, you are paying more than it's worth and that, that difference becomes goodwill. So that's that's a really good process. That's been around for a very long time. Internally developed intangibles like trademarks, corporate, that's they've also been around for a very long time. Like Mickey, um, Mickey Mouse is, is an intangible for Disney since the 50s, right? It's nothing new in terms of what those things are and how they get accounted for. The issue is, as you're saying, is that now some of the very large companies in the US, but in particular, have these, and, and this is particularly specific to the US accounting rules, have these large off-balance sheet balances of internally developed intangibles. And as I said, the challenge there is how do you value those? And and it's very difficult because there is no good market mechanism. There is no good competitive mechanism that puts a price on those things. There's a lot of research written on how these things should be valued. The most known methodology is looking at R&D, so looking at a company's balance, uh, financial statement and looking at the R&D expense and the um, uh, selling and general administration expense and accumulating those because they represent intangibles. And then, and then if you want to adjust your book value with that number, that's kind of one methodology that you could use. If you use that methodology, our research shows that, you, that the, the difference in performance, it would have been a little bit better in the last 10 years because obviously the large companies would have would have made a difference. But over time, it really wouldn't have made much of a difference at all from a portfolio standpoint. The other thing is, the, one of the reasons why it wouldn't have made a difference because you, you, you also want to use, you also have profitability. So for us, we use profitability as operating profits on book. So if you're making book larger, all of a sudden that company becomes less profitable. So you want to increase its weight because it's becoming cheaper but you also want to decrease its weight because it's becoming less profitable. So net-net, it's actually not changing much in your overall portfolio. So all the research that we've done shows us that, you know, if you adjust for intangibles, it's very tricky thing to do because the, 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 you know, you, there's a lot the low transparency how these things are valued and there's a lot of complications around how you adjust the book value with those numbers. And then, and then but if, if you go ahead and do that and you still run your portfolios the way we've been doing, where you're using value and profitability, the net outcomes is, is, is pretty meaningless. Do you think that accounting standards need to be adjusted to uh, account for something like this globally? 
they're, they're different globally, Rob. Like in Australia, we've got IFRS. In the US, they're GAP. So IFRS, we actually, IFRS is very different. We actually don't have that problem, this intangibles problems in accounting in, in Australia because in Australia, what companies are able to do is if they do incur a lot of this, if they have a lot of, for example, patents or, or, or software, for example, off balance sheet, every year an Australian company can have a look at that balance of patents or software and say, all right, how much of that has actually eventuated in profits and they could then capitalize that that amount right so in australia if you have a look the off balance sheet intangibles balances are very low so it's just because of the accounting standards of that way so it's again and that's another if you're running global portfolios and you all of a sudden want to account for intangibles how do you do it us has this standards australia has this standards like what do you do in a global portfolio it makes it very difficult and and that's why you've there's been a lot of conversations about intangibles and value, but you haven't seen many managers actually do any adjustments. Generally speaking, what managers tend to do is that they tend to use multiple metrics rather than just price to book. They use price to earnings and price to cash flow and price to sales. They combine those and that kind of diversifies out that impact. And that's exactly what we do as well at Dimensional. We use price to book and profitability, which is kind of the equivalent, if you like, of using that multiple metrics approach. So that's, that's, the, that's the short of it. But it's, it's an area of an enormous amount of research and we've done a ton of it. And it's been, it's been something that clients have been asking us a lot about because mainly because of negative value, uh, value premium. And that negative value premium over the recent past is driven by this large group of companies that have, ha- that have large balances of internally developed intangibles. How do you respond to investors or money managers who say price to earnings, price to book, what those metrics are telling me about the next 12 months about that company is absolutely yeah. meaningless and useless to me. Yeah. I'm looking at the future cash flows of that company beyond the next 12 months. So those metrics, throw them in the bin yeah. because they're absolutely useless to me. How do you respond to that? What we've seen is whether the value premium has been negative or positive the explanatory power of those metrics has been super strong it stayed the same for decades right so it's a really it's a good signal of what drives returns the realized premiums are obviously very volatile so it really doesn't matter what metric you use you get you get the value premium irrespective of what you divide price by the key and that's 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 also important for the intangibles conversation too the key is the price you want to find a metric that gives you the purest possible signal on a low price you obviously have to divide by something right but that's really what the point of the value premium is low price high expected return all those metrics eventuate in the value premium we use price to book because book value is the most stable of the lot it doesn't change as much so that leads to low turnover portfolio so it's an implementation decision but we can just as easily use price to earnings of price to cash flow or price to sales or a combination of them it works it works fine if you use price to book and you've got profitability on the other side which is a non price based metric it's a lot it's it's a metric that doesn't change as quickly you put those two together you find companies that are cheap and also profitable that is an incredibly powerful combination and, and that research is, is undeniable. In the late 90s, Warren Buffett was absolutely crucified for not owning any uh, tech stocks. And yeah. you know, I've watched a number of the Berkshire Hathaway AGMs yeah. during the late 90s 
And it's interesting, a lot of parallels you can start drawing to the era that we're investing in now. It was said that Warren Buffett has lost his magic touch. He's all washed up. He's never going to make money again. Yeah. Are, are we seeing deja vu or has the value spring compressed so much yeah. over the last 10 years that no, it's actually not going to spring back and it's just going to break? Because there are yeah. only two things that are going to happen. It's going to spring back or break. What's, no, no, what's no. Slava's we, point of view on, on that? We, we're very confident that it's going to spring back. What we don't know is when. The, the, the dispersion between growth and value, particularly in the US, is as wide as it's ever been. So it's been a painful experience for investors in value. That's for sure. Not too dissimilar to what happened during the tech bubble. We, and we were, we were there. Like Dimensional were around, right? We, we had our, our kind of flagship portfolio in value coming into 2001, coming into that burst, was underperforming its benchmark by 5% per annum over a 10-year period. So it's like a cumulative 60% underperformance. And they got all of that back and then some within 18 months after that bubble burst. We hope that that's going to happen again, obviously. But the reality is that we don't know uh, when it's going to happen. But we do. But look, for us, you ha- always go back to that valuation equation that it's prices and cash flow. So long as companies have different expected return, you should always expect the value premium. You should always expect the profitability premium. We understand that these premiums are very, very noisy and very volatile. That's why we are not trying to time them. We're trying to keep focus on them all the time. And, and we just, we just yeah, we, we, we hope that it comes soon, but we're confident that it's going to come. The rest of that story uh, unfolded something like this. <laughs> After the tech boom and tech wreck, Berkshire Hathaway just went on an absolute tear, yeah. uh, having invested in value stocks and just left everybody yeah. in the dust, yeah, um, which is a- quite interesting. I'm going to wrap up, uh, yep. Slava. I've got one final question sure. for you. We are in the year 2023. What has been the investor's biggest regret? Not doubling down on value, I'd like to say. <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't I expect you to say no, that? No, no, no. Look, it's, uh, we're not, we, as you know, with Dimensional, we're not in the business of forecasting. Yeah, look, I hope, I hope that, you know, it, it, it has been a challenging couple of years. I think our portfolios have achieved pretty good outcomes considering the, the challenges that we've had in just the broader environment. Um, I do hope I do hope the value bounces back because it's good for our investors at the end of the day. All right, this is part B of this question. Do you ever go to sleep and think, shit, I really wish we had exposure to FANG? We, we do have exposure to FANG. We're just underweight. We absolutely have, and some of the some of the fangs we like we 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 have a pretty good exposure. Like we're not that underweight because they are profitable. So yeah, like we've we've got our core portfolios invest across the board. We have we own plenty of Apple, plenty of Microsoft, plenty of Facebook. We're just we're just underweight. But look, the thing is, those companies have grown to be so large, such a big part of the market that it's mathematically it's not going to take much of an underperformance from those stocks for the value premium to come roaring back. And I would like, again, I would really like the last sort of six weeks, um, we're starting to see some offshoots of that happening. So it's not, I can't put my hand on hard and say, this is definitely the start of a turnaround. We don't know. But what we see is that once, if if all of a sudden Amazon falls by 5%, that's a very strong day for our portfolios. Yeah. So they're just so large. Apple's down 22% um, over the last few weeks. So we, we are starting to see some turnaround. Slava, 
absolutely love the conversation. Thank you so much for, for joining. Maybe we'll have you back on again to talk a little bit about this when things have turned around and maybe we'll have a different conversation. But thanks again. Uh, enjoy yeah. the rest of your day and we'll chat again soon. I appreciate that. Very good. Very good to talk to you, Rob. Appreciate thanks, it. Thanks, Lana. Thanks. Bye for now. Okay. Bye-bye.